Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Christine Adler, who is Professor of Physics at the University of Michigan. She works in experimental high-energy nuclear physics on the border between nuclear and particle physics. Her research is focused on nucleon structure and quantum chromodynamics, QCD, the theory of the strong force. Welcome, Christine. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So um, I want to start this sort of a philosophical question. Um, I don't know much about particle physics, but I used to think that particle physics is sort of like the particle zoo, uh, that there's too many particles, too many interactions. Um, and uh, after reading the short essay you had sent me, uh, I'm now thinking you have a zoo and all the animals in the zoo have their own pets. So the, the theory, the picture appears to get more and more complicated. So, so I wondered, is somebody playing sort of a cruel Russian doll game with us or are things getting better? I think on the whole, things are getting better. Uh, things maybe go through, through cycles where you have to, you find a, you have a proliferation of, of new discoveries that you can't quite make sense of everything. And then, and then it, later on a pattern emerges. So if you think historically with the, before the understanding of the periodic table, when they yes. discovered more and more elements that you needed to discover enough to see that there could be a pattern in what you were finding, and then this allowed them to predict new elements and then go off, and, and those you know, holes in the periodic table were found. So similarly, in the history of nuclear and particle physics, in the particular in the 1950s, when we had the technology to develop accelerated beams and produce new particles in the laboratory, there was this zoo of particles. It was called a zoo, I think, <laughs> by, by certain people. Uh, and this led at the very end of the 1960s to the quark model yeah. of, of particles that interact via the strong nuclear force, uh, via exchange of gluons. And so once the quark model came out, we were able to make sense of these different particles as a series of bound states. Within yeah. the standard model, we still have, I mean, there's still six types of quarks, uh, six types of uh, leptons, uh, 
um, including the, the electron being the most familiar of those. But they seem to be organized in, we call them generations. Yeah. So, uh, so th three generations, uh, and yeah, three generations of two, so it's sort of three times two. And there seems to be this hint at another pattern that is not yet well understood. So, and that is, that is an open question in the standard model, what, what's behind these three generations of quarks, these three generations of leptons, and we, we don't know yet. I think someday we will we will have a better understanding of that that there is something behind this this pattern that has emerged. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, uh, could you give a, a quick um, historical picture here? So, um, long time ago, we used to think atoms are fundamental. Then we found protons, electrons, and neutrons, and then we found quarks inside those—not electrons, but protons and neutrons. Uh, but the quark picture then got complicated, right? So what is sort of the, the timeline um, of these uh, discoveries? So, uh, so the discovery of the atomic nucleus, when, when, when people first understood that atoms weren't simply, um, simply solid lumps, if, if you will, uh, uh, mixed, uh, balance negative and positive charges, but that there was you know, the negative charge, the electrons uh, orbiting around this positively charged core, which we know to be the nucleus, goes back to the, uh, the first, to 1911. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Rutherford, um, Marsden, and Geiger did this experiment where they, they shot uh, um, alpha particles, which are bound states of two neutrons and two protons. They're actually the, the atomic nucleus of a helium atom, although they didn't know it at the time. They just knew it was a, a positively charged particle that they could get from radioactive decays. And they shot those at a foil of gold. So think aluminum foil, just a little bit more expensive if it's made from gold. So in a thin sheet of aluminum, and they saw that about one in 8,000, know, sort of the nearest order of magnitude, one in 10,000, uh, bounced off of something at sharp angles, and the rest nearly straight, or maybe they got deflected just a little bit. And so they understood from this that, that um, there was a lot of empty space in gold atoms and that there was something positively charged, some kind of positively charged core uh, surrounded by negative, negatively charged electrons. And that the space, the volume that that core took was about one ten thousandth of the volume of the, the gold atom. And that was the discovery of the atomic nucleus. And so it was the decade after that, in the 19-teens, so that, uh, that the proton was discovered. Yeah. This was through yeah, nuclear reactions uh, in, in air. So it's a similar idea where they were scattering, it was Rutherford again, and he was scattering uh, alpha particles from radioactive decay, similar to what he'd done before, but letting them pass through air. And they were interacting with the nitrogen atoms in the air and sometimes knocked a proton, and a proton got knocked out. And these nuclear reactions can split up the neutrons and protons uh, in an atomic nucleus. And that he could measure the, the charge. He recognized that there were hydrogen, uh, well, hydrogen atoms being produced because an electron would then bind to that knocked off proton and he'd get hydrogen atoms. So he recognized that hydrogen was being produced and understood that, that part of the nucleus that had been discovered uh, six years or so earlier 
was, was being broken off, and this was the discovery of the proton, and the discovery of the neutron was in the 1930s, so a little yeah. bit longer to wait for that. And then you asked about quarks, the quark yeah. substructure. Yeah, so uh, this came out of all the different, so there are many different unstable particles uh, being produced in the 1950s and 1960s, and people sort of put together uh, a periodic table, and this came out in, the, in 1969. Uh, so uh, Gelman and Zweig, so two, two different uh, two different uh, physicists uh, came up with this, this quark model that hypothesized that there were these uh, different types, we call them flavors now. It's actually that the flavor of a quark is actually what interacts with the weak force. And the people didn't know all of this at the time. They just sort of looked at the different properties of the particles, like the charge. So for example, of course, the proton has positive one electric charge you know, relative to the um, amount of charge carried by an electron, and the neutron has zero electric charge. So they looked at the patterns of charge, so when particles that were positive one, negative one, neutral, uh, positive two, negative two, and uh, came up with these uh, subcomponents. Uh, there were a few other properties that they were looking at, um, and they found these patterns that led them to, to hypothesize the existence of, of constituents that when combined in these ways would give the right charges and the correct other quantum numbers. So at the time, uh, they just thought there were three different types of quarks called up, down, and strange, a little bit, a little bit arbitrarily. Uh, yeah. Up and down quarks are the main ones that comprise protons and neutrons, so the, the everyday matter. And yeah. those, are the, those are the first generation of quarks with respect to the generations yeah. I was talking about before. So, so the, the quark picture then um, was sort of making it a little simpler, right? Uh, the, the protons, uh, the initial thinking was there were three quarks that makes a, makes a proton and a neutron. That's right. And, and so, um, so, so how does that work? Um, so the proton has a charge, neutron doesn't. Uh, but the primary ingredients of these, the, both of these uh, particles are, are fundamentally the same, right? That the quarks. That's right. The, 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 they're called valence quarks uh, of the proton are two of these up-type quarks and one down. And in the neutron, there are two down-type quarks and one up. Now, they're called valence quarks, an analogy to the valence electrons yeah. in chemistry. So the valence electrons of an element determine the, the chemical behavior of the element. So you have other, uh, other electrons that are that are present. It's really the ones that are in the outer shell that determine the chemical behavior, how they interact with other elements. And so it was an analogy to this that these were called the valence quarks of, yeah. uh, of a hadron. A hadron is a, a strong force bound state, a bound state of quarks. So a hadron is the, the atom of the strong nuclear force where the atom is the bound state of the electromagnetic force. So the valence quarks of a, of a hadron determine its quantum numbers. So they will determine the, the, charge, of, uh, the charge of the bound state. So the possible values of the what's called the spin of the bound state are also determined by the valence quarks. So for the proton and the neutron, so quarks carry electromagnetic charge. One thing I always thought was very interesting, and I suspect there might be something deep behind it that we haven't yet understood, is that 
quarks carry fractional electromagnetic charge with respect to the proton and the neutron. So the up quark carries plus two thirds charge, yeah. and the down quark carries minus one third electric charge. So the, I said the valence quarks and the proton were two ups and a down. So we have two thirds plus two thirds minus one third equals three thirds, and we get the charge of plus one. Yeah. The valence quarks and the neutron are two downs and an up. So we have minus one third minus one third plus two thirds equals zero. And we get the new, electrically neutral neutron. Yeah. Are, are these uh, numbers, uh, Christine, two third and one third, are they truly measured numbers or are we using it more conceptually? They are measured through scattering of uh, electrons off of protons or neutrons. So if you scatter off of uh, if you scatter electrons off of protons or neutrons at high enough energies, then you can break them up. So you have inelastic scattering, and uh, you can also think of it as the, uh, the wavelength. So through wave particle duality, the higher energy an electron beam is, the, the shorter distances you can probe. So just like people talk about the the limits of optical microscopy, so a regular light microscope is really good for seeing features on distant scales of, of cells, of uh, you know, cellular organelles and things like this, but not good for uh, seeing atomic atoms, right, individual atoms or even molecules, because the wavelength of visible light is not short enough. So you, you need to go to even shorter wavelengths to probe, probe these smaller and smaller distances and in principle, you could use very high energy gamma rays. We don't have very good, we don't have technology to produce high intensity gamma ray beams at high enough energies to probe inside the proton. So we use particle beams, electron beams. Often, you can also use other proton beams, which is something I do. Yeah. And through particle wave duality, the high energy, the high energy particle beams can behave like a wave and very short wavelength because it's very high energy and probe these really tiny distances. So at, at high enough energies, an electron beam can scatter off of basically a single quark inside the proton because the distance scale it's probing is so tiny. And then yeah. we, uh, we know how uh, the electromagnetic interaction is. So the electrons are interacting with the electric charge of the quarks. And this is how we gain sensitivity with the electric charge centers in the protons at really, really tiny distance scales. Yeah, and so, so we were getting sort of a nice picture in the sense that two up quarks and one down quark produces the proton with a unit charge and the two down quarks and one up quark uh, creates a neutral neutron uh, and you call them valence quarks. Um, but the picture is not that simple, right? <laughs> when you go inside the proton, you, you have all sorts of other stuff going on there. That's right, that's right. Uh, and this was, uh, become, became clear that it was really important starting in the 1980s. So another, uh, one, another one of the quantum mechanical properties uh, where things sort of, uh, we know how the totals have to add up, but people understood that the spin of the proton was one half h-bar. Uh, which happens to be the same as the electron, but then people knew that the proton had constituents. We've never had any sensitivity to constituents in the electron, at least so far. But people knew the proton was composite, and so the three valence quarks, valence quarks also carry one half 
h bar spin. So they thought, okay, the spin of the proton uh, must simply be carried by, you know, two of the quarks must be spinning in the same direction and one must be in the opposite. So we get uh, one, plus, one half plus one half uh, minus one half uh, equals a half times h bar, a quantum unit of, of spin. Yeah. Uh, and it was in the late 1980s that an experiment uh, at CERN in Europe, in Geneva, uh, discovered that only uh, about 25% of the quark spins, uh, sorry, only 25% of the proton spin is made uh, is due to the, the, the quark spins. Mm. And this was a big surprise at the time. It became known as the proton spin crisis. <laughs> yeah. And this uh, Still not completely resolved. We have certainly learned more. I guess that my my facility, the Relativistic Heavy Ion Collider at Brookhaven National Lab in suburban New York on Long Island, yeah. made a big announcement about uh, in 2014 about the gluon, which is a force carrier particle of the strong force, which plays an analogous role to the photon in electromagnetism. The photon is the force carrier particle of electromagnetism. And uh, photons and gluons both carry spin one. And so in 2014, my facility at Brookhaven National Lab announced the discovery that the, the gluons, the gluon spin was also contributing to the proton spin. But to go back to your broader question about the, what's going on inside the proton, we don't have this simple three quark picture. Uh, yeah, so we have three quarks. We have these gluons being exchanged between them all the time. And then due to uh, quantum mechanics and E equals mc squared, theory in this case, but uh, we have uh, quark-anti-quark pairs mm. that can fluctuate in and out of existence uh, inside the proton, and this is happening constantly. So we have uh, many, many fluctuations that these quark-anti-quark pairs that exist briefly, and then they annihilate again into a gluon, uh, and, and new ones come, and it's a very dynamic environment inside the proton. Is this analogous to um, sort of the, the quantum fluctuations in the in the vacuum that we talk about uh, in relation to the dark energy and those types of things? It is it is related to quantum fluctuations in the vacuum. So it's yeah. uh, it's, uh, it's not a vacuum inside the proton. So you have this uh, color field, if you will. So like an electromagnetic field and electromagnetism in the strong force. So it's called color and the reason it's called the charge of the strong force is called color is because back in the 70s when it was developed people saw that they needed three charges to make a neutral rather than electromagnetism where of course we just have two charges to make something neutral which we just call positive and negative electric charge they saw you needed three charges to make a neutral for the strong force and thought of the analogy to red green and blue light making neutral white light and called it color hmm. and so there's this color field inside the proton in which this, these dynamic processes are taking place. So, so the spin crisis, as you mentioned, uh, that's getting resolved um, by the idea that uh, a lot of the spin is carried by the gluons? So it's not clear yet how much. We, yeah. uh, the the uh, announcement or the discovery was that it, it uh, does contribute non-negligibly. So we measured something different from zero and it was positive. So it's contributing in the, in the same direction. It's not taking away from the yeah. spin because in principle that was possible. 
but we don't yet have very well constrained. So, so we still have a large uncertainty on how much the gluon spin is contributing to the total quark spin. Uh, the one other thing that can contribute in, uh, in terms of, so we have contributions from the quark spins, the gluon spin, and then uh, we can have orbital angular momentum, the spin yeah. is a form of angular momentum. And we know that the proton has a, a finite, a non-zero radius. So we've measured it. Yeah, we've measured it to be about 0.8 times 10 to the minus 15 meters, about 0.8 femtometers. Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually, there's an interesting discrepancy right now about uh, a few digits past that, uh, that uh, <laughs> one set of experiments versus another set of experiments disagree on, yeah. uh, on the radius of the proton. Um, so that's another interesting area. But anyway, the fact that it's non-zero uh, means that you, you have your quarks and your gluons orbiting about the center of the proton and contributing that way to the proton's total spin, total angular momentum. And the orbital motion is not measured really at all. There are some ideas about how to do that now and what I would call pioneering experiments, but that's a pretty open question. So, so, so Christine, so things are getting uh, more complicated, right? So you, you mentioned that we have quarks and anti-quarks coming in and out of existence and we have sort of a, a sea of these things happening inside the proton, but ultimately the three valence quarks that you talked about determine its properties. So is this, I was wondering, Christine, I don't know anything about this. Is this sort of analogous to uh, when we think about the early universe where, you know, most of the antimatter got wiped out and there was a slight favorability to matter? And that's why we are here. This sort of similar thing happening inside the proton. It's really different from that. So yeah. the quark-anti-quark -quark pairs are always created in pairs inside a proton or a neutron. I mean, we do have antiprotons and antineutrons, but the quark and anti-quark pairs would be, you know, blipping in and out of existence in this, this sea of quark-anti-quark -quark pairs in, in the those antiparticles as well. So the Going back to the early universe, we don't know where the imbalance came from because everything, nearly everything we see, uh, we always have matter and antimatter created equally when we're creating new matter. Yeah. So yeah, in the proton, we're starting with more matter and we have more matter than, than antimatter, if you will. And then every the antimatter inside the proton, these anti-quarks inside the proton are always come with a quark pair. Yeah. It's really a, it's really a separate question. Yeah. But the, the valence quarks, as you mentioned, they are they are a real, I don't know real is the right term, but they're not anti-quarks, right? But that's right. In the proton, they're quarks, not anti-quarks. So if you create an anti-proton, which we know how to do and yeah. do easily in the laboratory, create anti-protons and anti-neutrons, uh, then the valence particles, the valence constituents are anti-quarks. So uh, uh, an anti-proton, the valence constituents would be two anti-up quarks and one anti-down quark. Hmm. And so, so the real picture is um, if you, I mean, I, I don't know if the, this is not possible, but if you, if you take a picture of a proton at any point in time, um, you might see 
yeah, many, many quads and anti-quads in addition to the valence quads. Is that the way to think about it? That's correct. And how, how much yeah. you see depends on the resolution with which you look at it, just, just like imaging many things, right? Sort of how much you zoom in will determine how much structure, how many features you can see. Yeah. And, and so the, the external properties, uh, the, the, the spin, the charge, and so on, how do, the, how do those things uh, get affected by this sort of um, sloshing sea inside the proton? Right. So that's a good question for the spin. We, we think it's easy for charge because everything, all these quark-antiquark -quark pairs, they always come in pairs. So the, the electric charge of an antiquark exactly balances the, the charge of a quark, of its partner quark. So, so, you know, up and up is plus two thirds, the anti up is going to be minus two thirds, that's electric charge. So the charge always gets balanced. So this makes sense. For the spin, it's less clear how the anti quarks would be affecting the spin of the proton because we have evidence that there are contributions to the spin of the proton from the anti quarks. And we really don't understand what mechanism might lead to a polarization of, of the anti quarks, of these C quarks. Quark-antiquark pairs, uh, or, or part of the quark-antiquark pairs, uh, you know, that come in and out of existence. So that is a, a, a mystery right now that, that my colleagues and I are working on trying to understand. Yeah. Does the spin of the proton, um, it, it has to match precisely to the spin of the electron? That's right. The total spin of the proton is uh, is Quantized spin is a, a quantized um, variable, and yeah. it, it's exactly one half h bar, and this is the same as the electron. Yeah, and so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so the the question is for a composite particle such as the proton, how do all the constituents sort of snap exactly into this total <laughs> of one half h bar? Right. Right. Yeah, so that, that is a real puzzle, isn't it? So um, they, they, does, it, does there have to be some sort of a information exchange between the electron and proton for the dance to happen precisely? So it is possible to exchange spin between electrons and protons bound together in atoms. This is actually how we create the polarized protons in the beam at the relativistic heavy ion collider. Uh, yeah. where we use a laser to, to polarize the electrons in atomic hydrogen. So you just have a, uh, yeah, just regular atomic hydrogen. You use a, a laser to polarize the electrons, so photons, light, to polarize the electrons in the hydrogen atom. And then you use this coupling between the spin of the electron and the spin of the proton in a hydrogen atom to transfer the, the polarization of the electron to the proton. And then after that, we strip off the electron, and then the, the game becomes not losing that polarization uh, of, of the proton that we started with as we accelerate it to very high energies, which you know, comes with a lot of technological challenges of its own. But the spin of the internal constituents, so we don't, uh, we're not, uh, we don't think in terms of any, we think of the, the electron interacting with the spin of the proton as a whole, not with the spin of the constituents, and then what we actually 
work with in our polarized proton experiments, at least mine, using the relativistic heavy ion collider, we just have a free proton beam, so there, uh, it's not bound to any electrons. So we're really studying just the, the spin of the proton, yeah. not in a bound state of any sort. Mm-hmm. So, so that is a contemporary puzzle. This uh, appears to be a complex composite, the proton. How does it precisely match the spin of the electron in an atom? There is another puzzle on the table, right? If I understand this correctly, uh, Christine, when, uh, it, there is some sort of an asymmetry in terms of antiquarks um, inside that C. The, uh, the down antiquarks less than up antiquarks or something along those lines? Uh, yes. Uh, so this was a result that my experiment at Fermilab, we just uh, published in Nature in February this year, where we see that there are something like 50% more or so anti-down quarks than there are anti-up quarks in the proton. And this, uh, so it was confirming and adding more information to a a discovery of an excess of of anti-down quarks with respect to anti-up quarks that had been made by, by a predecessor experiment and we, we saw that this excess of anti-down quarks uh, persists into, um, in, into a kinematic regime that, that's kind of extreme, so that even for anti-quarks that carry a very high fraction, momentarily carry a very high fraction of the total proton's momentum, which are they're very rare in the proton. As you might imagine, typically the valence quarks carry most of the proton momentum, and the, the anti-quarks, or these quark-anti-quark pairs that flit in and out of existence only are carrying very small momentum. So we were able to take snapshots, if you will, of these very high momentum antiquarks and found that this excess of anti-down quarks uh, with respect to anti-up quarks at these very high momentum fractions. So for antiquarks carrying up to like 40% of the total proton momentum, uh, this persists. So the reason people originally expected anti-down and anti-up quarks to be produced equally in the proton is because the up and down masses are very very similar to one another. Yeah. So through you know E equals mc squared, uh, uh, what's happening is gluons are splitting. So that the force carrier particle of the strong force are, are splitting into quark-anti-quark pairs. The gluons don't know anything about whether the quark or anti-quark is up or down type. The gluon is sensitive to color charge, but not sensitive to uh, to this flavor charge uh, of upness or downness. And so, it, um, given that it can't tell the difference between up quarks and down quarks, anti-up quarks, anti-down quarks, uh, if the masses are very similar, then they should be produced in approximately equal amounts. And if anything, then we think the down quark slightly heavier than the up quark because of the difference in masses between the neutron and the proton. So the proton we said was two ups and a down, the neutron's two downs and an up, and the neutron is a little bit heavier than the proton. So if anything, the down quark should be a little bit heavier than the up quark. And therefore, if anything, if it's just, if it were due to a mass difference, you would expect slightly more up up and anti-up quarks uh, than than anti-down quarks. And we saw the opposite, and we saw that it's, you know, it's like 50% more anti-down yeah. quarks uh, than anti-up quarks. So it's really a, a 
striking excess. And this, uh, yeah, this is not well understood yet. So there's some ideas about um, sort of bound state fluctuations, so that uh, the, the lightest bound state, the lightest hadron, uh, that QCD bound state, strong force bound state, is called a pion. Mm-hmm. It's made uh, the valence quarks in a pion are one an up quark and an anti down quark. And so it's only got, it's got one quark and one anti-quark. There's a whole set of unstable particles that can, um, that are bound states of a quark and an anti-quark. And you can have different quark types that you mix and match to make the different types of particles that were part of the particle zoo that people were discovering in the 1950s before they figured out the patterns and came up with the idea of quarks. So uh, there's an, an idea that the proton can fluctuate into a bound, basically a positively charged pion, this uh, light quark-anti-quark bound state, and the neutron momentarily, and then go back into being a a proton, so they recombine into a a proton. And so this is one idea about how the anti-down quark might get shifted to very high momentum fractions. Carrying something like 40% of the proton's mo- momentum, more often than anti-up quarks do. But the picture isn't completely clear yet, so we don't have a, a really conclusive, uh, crisp description of all the data uh, with a theoretical model that uses this idea. So it's still it's certainly still in the running, and I think it's definitely contributing, but it's not completely clear yet if this is really the explanation or it's a little bit more complex than that. Yeah. Uh, so, so you mentioned that there is a 50% excess of down antiquarks. Since uh, quark-antiquark pairs are happening simultaneously, um, is it, would, would it be true in saying that there is a preference for down pair creation compared to up pair? Is that that's, that? That's right, yeah. And, and so... Doesn't that go, uh, it's, okay, I mean, obviously, uh, <laughs> I don't know anything about it, but so that means that it is not quite random if you are finding this a systematic bias toward one variety. That's right. So what does that imply? Well, yeah, this is goes back to what I was saying about the idea of the proton fluctuating briefly, again, quantum mechanically, into a a, pi, a positively charged pion, which is has valence quarks of an up and an anti-down, yeah. and a neutron, which has the, the two downs and an up. So you would have one new... So if you think of what you started with, the valence quarks would be two ups and a down. If you create a new down-anti-down pair, and then those form these... briefly form these new bound states, so if the new down and the down anti-down pair uh, combines with one of the original protons ups and one of its and its only down quark, so you end up with two downs and an up. That's how you create the neutron briefly. Yeah. And then what you're left with was the other up from the original proton and the new anti-down that you just created in your down anti-down pair. Mm. And that original up from the proton could briefly bind with this anti-down that was just created and form this particle called a positively charged pion. And then, you know, after uh, you know, a split second, they would recombine into just a proton rather than a, a neutron plus a, a, 
positively charged pion. And so this is uh, this could shift uh, up the average momentum of the anti-down quark if it were sort of forming these this other bound state, not just a pair in the proton, but really sort of a, a this fluctuation of the proton into a neutron plus a positively charged pion. So that's the the main idea, like the the the, the best contender to explain yeah. this, uh, but isn't it's not completely clear that that's the whole story. <laughs> yeah. So so the, these types of things can only happen. Uh, in a free proton and a free neutron, right? It cannot happen inside an atom. Uh, it also happens inside uh, inside atoms, inside atomic nuclei. Yeah. So all of all of them, every atom in our body has antimatter in it, blipping uh, yeah. in and out of existence. Yeah. So so I was wondering. So if if the proton could momentarily become a neutron, if I understand it correctly, Christine, then. Wouldn't that create a problem inside an atom? So because it's created along with a positively charged pion, yeah. the electric charge is fine. We always have electric charge conservation, so we can't destroy it or create it out of nowhere. Yeah. So the so in that sense it's fine. So going back to the 1930s, the before people understood quarks and gluons, they actually thought that the protons and neutrons were held together in the atomic nucleus by the exchange of pions. So they thought, you know, rather than exchanging gluons, people didn't, hadn't conceived those yet, they thought that they were actually exchanging you know, bound states. Well, I guess it was a little bit after the 1930s because they didn't have a quark model yet. But um, yeah, they thought they were exchanging these, these bound states. So there have been ideas about pions in the nucleus uh, so not really sitting there as bound states, but being exchanged, existing briefly, being you know absorbed by another one, and sort of re rearranging, uh, rearranging some of the internal constituents in a sense uh, that this these kinds of fluctuations happening. The ideas are actually pretty old. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Christine, in conclusion, uh, what is what is your instinct? I know that you have done a lot of work in this area and continue to do so. There are a few interesting new puzzles <laughs> on the table. Uh, what's your sort of instinct? Um, are we um, are we going to find more fundamental stuff as we go forward, or are we going to solve the problem with the picture that we currently have with, with details? I really hope we find a more fundamental pattern, if you will, in particular for the, the spin of the spin of the proton. Um, we'll we'll have to see. Uh, there's going to be a major new facility that's being going to be constructed in the 2020s yeah. at Berkeley National Laboratory called the Electron Ion Collider, and, and that will run polarized protons, uh, pol polarized helium three beams as a, an effective polarized neutron beam. Uh, and polarized electron beams colliding with them. And I think that facility has great promise to, um, again, going back to my periodic table analogy, which I originally laid out yeah. up to the as an analogy leading up to the discovery of quarks with the particle zoo for, for hadrons that were discovered in the 1950s and 60s. I hope that by 
sort of filling in more details in the pictures we have now, we'll see how there's a simpler picture. Yeah. Right, that a, a simpler way of looking at things will will emerge. That's certainly my hope, but of course it remains to be seen if that happens. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah, I mean it always makes it interesting, right? Uh, every time, uh, every time we think we are getting closer, there appears to be more interesting things to find. So that 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 makes it makes it interesting to go on. For sure, yeah. There's always always more to discover. The closer you look, uh, sometimes the more questions you realize that you have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I I just want to ask you a quick question. Uh, whatever we are finding here should not really have any impact on the cosmological questions around dark matter and dark energy, right? No, not not to my knowledge. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, uh, Christine. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.